uh, we would invite you to take that physical one home. Uh, there's lots of other options out there. You can probably find other free ones, but that's a free one. Um, and if uh, we, we believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things on the top shelf of all those important things is that he uses the scriptures, his word, to reveal himself to his people. Uh, we want you to know God. We want everything in, about, and around your life to be shaped by knowing him, filtered through the lens of knowing him. And if the scriptures are what he uses in you to do that, um, then just like it's, it's common sense to be pressing into the scriptures as much as you can. Psalm chapter 5, or Psalm 5. Um, so we finished up Ruth last week, last Sunday, and now uh, we got this little bit of time uh, before uh, we kind of kick off our giant plans for, for Advent. All right? And if some of you just broke out into a cold sweat thinking that Christmas is coming down the pipe soon, you're going to be just absolutely blown over. Just blow a gasket uh, if you try to go down to South Nashua anytime soon. The, uh, the, the shoppers coming up from Massachusetts have begun to arrive. All right, The winter wonderland traffic jam is upon us. Um, it, it, as a personal rule in my life, I don't get within two exits of the mall in the months of November and December. Anybody else? I had to go down there this week, and I was like, nope, not again. I'm done. <laughs> this is my last trip down to South Nashua for 2022. All right, so, uh, so uh, you have my word, though, my, my word at least, uh, that we, except for OCC playfulness that we're going to get into this week, uh, we're going to stay far away from Christmas stuff until Thanksgiving has had its space. All right? That's how we roll. Uh, I think it's important, and we're going to do that. Um, so... For those of you who haven't uh, been around, that means that we have kind of a hole in our preaching calendar. We've got, uh, we finished the series, it, we, we kind of, you know, tucked it all away, and then we've got these big plans for, for Christmas season, for Advent. So what do we do in November? Well, for those of you who haven't been here, whenever we have these, these kind of weird spaces in our preaching calendar, we go racing back to the Psalms, all right? Uh, we, it's kind of my hope and dream that God will let us get as far as possible through preaching the Psalms as we can. Uh, there's 150 of them. I don't know if we'll ever get all the way there. If God gives me 40 years here, maybe we'll get there. I don't know. But here's the deal. We go racing back to the Psalms whenever we can. We got these four weeks on the calendar that we can do something about it. And so we're going we're gonna to do something about it. Um, the problem with that is this, though. Uh, trying to preach through the Psalms is an interesting thing if you're the cerebral type. Right? I tend to be the more thought-driven, give me a clear course of action, point A leads to point B, which therefore necessarily means point C. That, that tends to be how my life operates. I don't do well with, with uh, just raw emotion. I don't do well with just expressing myself in a lot of different kinds of ways, and it's just how I'm wired. But the Psalms, they never really seem to care about the cerebral folks in the room. They just, they're just not interested in that. They're not playing that game. Um, it's not what the Psalms are, the Psalms aren't trying to give a logical pathway to readers. A better description of the Psalms would be just raw emotion laid bare. Raw emotion laid bare. See, whether you're reading or preaching through a Psalm, it's always important to remember to lean more towards what the writer felt rather than what the writer did, which is almost the exact opposite of Paul sometimes. I tend to be more of a Pauline guy. The psalmists just don't care about giving you that. And um, psalmists instead, instead of uh, saying, this thing is true, therefore go and live this way, they instead invite us into experiencing the lives and the heart and the struggle of God's people as they lived. And sometimes, we can point to some places, sometimes Israel's doing things pretty well. They're just kind of nailing it in that season. 
But those of you who know the Bible well know that there are a lot of other times that they're not doing so well. There are a lot of other times, probably way more times, that they're just absolutely failing in what they have been called to do. And so a lot of times they're getting things very, very wrong. But either way, whether right or wrong, man, it's, the Psalms are always real. Always incredibly real. And because of that, I think the psalmists truly get us. Right? I don't know if you ever think in terms of, oh, does this writer of the biblical account, does, is this scriptural author, do, do they understand how my world works? They understand the kind of things that I have to live with and face down. Do, do they actually get me? And I am, I'm pretty confident that the psalmists do. In fact, I'm incredibly confident that the psalmists do. Um, I think they live and experience the world just like you and I live and experience the world. And when they find themselves in a moment where they're able to kind of respond to that lived experience, they don't just, they don't just pass it through a filter like you and I have often been trained to do. Have, have you done that in your life or seen that in your own heart? Like, there's this filter that exists in me that won't allow what I'm actually thinking to come out. And sometimes that's to my benefit, all right? In fact, a lot of times that's to my benefit, um, but that's not what the psalmists are doing. And I think that's why some people in here actually adore the psalms. You would point to it immediately as your favorite book of the Bible. It's, I think it's because it gives voice to raw emotion that most of us, at least myself, have been trained not to allow to the surface. And we're going to look at one of those raw moments this morning in Psalm 5. It's an incredibly raw moment. It's one of those screaming at the heavens kind of scenarios. You're frustrated, you're upset, you, you can't believe that, that, that this is happening and that's happening. And, and I think it, that if we're honest, it's a moment that a lot of us are actually pretty familiar with. Incredibly familiar with. So, so you ready to get into it? You ready to, ready to look at Psalm 5? We're going to start by looking at the title. Uh, we, we talked about this uh, before as we've studied the Psalms together. Uh, but different translations, of, or at least English translations of the Scriptures, uh, they all treat the title uh, differently in the Psalms. And so some translations will include it as a part of verse 1. Other translations, like the ESV that we're using today, they pull it out as a superscript and, and then keep verse 1 separate. All right? uh, and, but we're going to look at it today. Uh, either way, the title, I think, is I'm not 100% solid, but I think is original text, at the very least, it's as old as our oldest manuscripts of the Psalms. And so it predates everybody's like talking about the Psalms. And so we're going to treat it like it's original here. All right. Um, not something that was added later. So look at it with me. Psalm 5, starting in the little superscript, it says this, to the choir master for the flutes, a Psalm of David. Yeah, even our, even our presentation software can't put it up on the screen because it doesn't know what to do with it. All right. So to the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. All right, so what do we see? What do we see? Well, we see a few things that we actually have a lot of previous experience with. As we've walked through the psalms together, we've actually come across all of these things before. And so we've talked about it at length in other places. Uh, we're told who the psalm is written to, who the psalm is written by, and even a little bit about the style that the psalm is written in, right? Who it's written to, who it's written by, and what, what style it is, it's in. And so for starters, we're told that it's addressed to the choir master. Is that a job title you want? Maybe you want that job title. Other translations, like the, the King James Version, they call him the chief musician. That sounds even cooler. The choir master, the chief musician. What do we know about them? Well, we know that there was a person who was in charge of coordinating the musical worship of the congregation of Israel. 
They have that job title. If you're new here, maybe you just never put the pieces together before on this. That means that what we're about to look at in Psalm 5, it's not just... It's not merely like the poetic thoughts of someone who thought, decided to have, you know, kind of a, uh, an artistic moment and it got preserved down to us. It's not just an inspirational thing. Some ancient songwriter had a, had a moment where they're like, ah, I got a song to write. And then somebody smart is like, hey, let's keep a copy of that and then put it in a book later. That's not, that's not what's going on here. No, th- this song it was written expressly for the purpose of public worship among God's people. That's why it exists. A songwriter with a heart and an eye towards the congregation said, aha, I know what the congregation ought to sing next. Songwriter's putting words in the mouth of the congregation. He's calling them to sing specific things so as to teach and shape what they believe about God and what they believe about themselves. It's intentional. So does that mean that this isn't a a genuine artistic moment, that that the writer of the psalm isn't actually feeling these things? No, that's not what it means at all. What it does mean, though, is that a good teacher never misses an opportunity to apply a lesson, right? Those of you who are a teacher or married to a teacher, you know, they never stop thinking about this stuff, all right? Having a good day, use it to teach. Having a bad day, use that to teach too. That's what they do. That's that's every teacher in the room right now. They can never let something go. They got to keep it for later, so who then is the teacher? David. King David, right? However, that is a point of debate among some people. The reason for that, we're going to see it later. Uh, we're not going to spend too much time on it then. Uh, but later on in verse 7, the writer of this psalm is going to refer to God's holy temple. I'm going to call it by name, the holy temple. And even a cursory knowledge of the Old Testament ought to like, have some alarm bells going off in your head because David and the temple, they don't exist at the same time. David wasn't allowed to build the temple. His son was allowed to build the temple, Solomon. David wanted to and God told him no. And so David and the temple don't exist at the same time. And so some people point to verse 7 as definitive proof that David could not possibly have written this song. Or, even beyond that, that he shouldn't be credited with a number of the psalms that we often give him credit to. And look at, I mean, look at Psalm 5, verse 7. See, David, that's anachronistic. How, how dare we think that David actually wrote that? There are a number of really simple solutions out there. Uh, we talked about this, I think, when we talked about Psalm 30 about a year and a half ago, maybe. I, I, calendars are hard these days after COVID. All right. Um, I think we talked about this before in Psalm 30. There are a number of really simple solutions that don't require us to just assume that somebody is falsely presenting themselves as as David in this moment. Uh, Those solutions range all the way from David possibly writing this psalm, knowing that the temple is coming because he prepared for the temple. He wanted to and you know, God said, wait, and he gathered all the stuff. And so uh, Psalm 30 is probably a psalm that David wrote before as a dedication to the temple once it was finally built. And so maybe this psalm fits into that category as well, something that he was preparing for when the temple finally got there. That's a possibility. Uh, maybe uh, also as a second option, David is talking about the temporary temple that we uh, learn about at Shiloh uh, in First Samuel 1. We know that David was around during that one, all right? And so maybe, I don't know, uh, the, another solution is possible is that, is that the Hebrew word temple here, well, my mic is cut now, that's fun. All right, the Hebrew word for temple here uh, is just a word that means habitation. 
That's all it actually means. The same word is used all over the Old Testament to talk about a bunch of other things, like household and palace, and even one place it's used to talk about a prison. Like, that's, that's cool. And so translating this temple has less to do with brick and stone and more to do about with a specific place that God's presence resides, which can be in a temple. doesn't have to be in the temple. Now, are we certain that any one of those options are it, that, that, that those options are the answer? No, not a bit. It Maybe it's something we haven't thought of yet. But every single one of those options are an easier pill to swallow than, oh, we have a historical problem, it can't be David. Like, it's an easier game to play, right? So some people like to make noise about it, but I don't know if you've discovered this in your own life. Um, a lot of times, the people that are making the most noise are the people who walked into the room looking for any excuse they can to make noise. Have you seen that? Probably what's going on here. So we've got the author, we've got the intended audience. What's the final thing we learned? That it's for, for the flutes. We know what flutes are, right? Who knows what a flute is? By the way, my eldest is learning how to play the flute right now. It's a fun moment in our house. <laughs> we know what flutes are. Several of the psalms that we've looked at so far, uh, we've come across things in the intro, in the title, uh, that we can't even pronounce, let alone define. Words that have been kind of transliterated uh, for us from the Hebrew. Um, and so meaning that they've, been, they've changed the spelling to an English spelling so that we can at least pronounce it with our English sounds. Right? Uh, but we don't know what they actually are. And our best guess in most of those moments is that it's some kind of musical notation. Right? You've heard me talk about that ad nauseum. Right? Um, it's almost always our best guess. But here, man, we know what flutes are. We don't have to wonder what flutes are. We know what flutes are. And apparently, apparently David thinks that this song deserves a flute solo. I don't know if there's the long list of songs that deserve a flute solo, but this song gets a flute solo. You ready to get into it? Verse 1? All right. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. All right, let's stop there. All right, so right out of the gate, we understand uh, that we're dealing with one of the Psalms of lament, right? One of the Psalms of lament, meaning it's one of the sad ones. Right, who, was, who was really looking forward to listening to one of the, you know, reading and studying one of the sad Psalms today? Didn't everybody get excited about the sad Psalms? About a third of the psalms are lament, roughly a third, which sounds a little depressing until you actually remember that um, that's pretty much about the same case in your life as well. There's a lot of lament in your week, too. I'm convinced that we've all got more God, why is this happening to me in our lives than we like to publicly admit to. It's definitely true in my heart. See, the difference between David and us is not that David's crazy and we aren't. The difference between David and us is he lets everybody else know that he's crazy. In fact, he writes a song for the congregation of Israel to sing about it. Wholly different worlds. Now, we all know Eeyore types. I'm sure you know those people in your life, folks that can't find a single positive thing to say about anything that's going on in their week, and people that kind of live in a perpetual state of trying to get everybody else to feel sorry about themselves. That's not what's going on here at all. David is just as quick in other instances to like pull everybody into his celebration. 
It's both and for David. And so sharing his lament here, I think it's more about teaching the congregation of Israel the correct way to respond to God in those dark moments that we all eventually find ourselves in. We all live them. And David says, let me show you how to walk through it. So what do we see David do when the dark day arrives? Well, he gives us a couplet with some nuance. Those of you who have studied the Psalms before, you, you understand the word couplet, this little, you know, these little lines that are pulled together that kind of bring nuance and flavor to the idea in two different ways. Um, and so he gives us a couplet with some nuance. He says, give care to my words and consider my groaning. That's interesting. Hey, did you know there were two types of genuine prayer? I don't know if you've ever done the math on that sat down and made the list. There are lots of types of disingenuous prayer, lots of those, but really two types of really genuine prayer. There's prayer that you have words for, and then there's prayer that you don't have words for. You ever been in that moment? I've been in that moment. There, there's a type of prayer that's filled with vocabulary filled with words. And those words uh, are an adornment to what God is doing in, in your heart. And they're, they're an attempt to put shape and an explanation to what we feel and what we are experiencing. And, and like our God is a God who speaks. He, he, he's always talking. He's the one who came up with the idea of words. He invented them. He fills them with beauty and he fills them with power. And as a guy who spends a lot of my time, like, in career, like, reading and then turning around and talking about that reading, I kind of love words. I'm a big fan of them. But then there's, there's, there's the second type of prayer. The wordless groaning. Groaning is an unrestrained utterance of what's going on in our hearts. Because sometimes, as hard as they try... Words aren't enough. As great as words are, and I'm of the opinion that the world would be a better place if people tried to expand their vocabularies. Like, I think we're kind of lazy with the way we talk a lot of the time. Even as great as words are, there are not enough words in all of the languages of this world to adequately express every single thing that goes on in the hearts of, that, that God has in his goodness given to us. There are some moments, there are some emotions that words aren't big enough or deep enough or shapely enough to actually get the job done. And all we have left in that moment is groaning. And the Bible promises that not only does God understand it, he seems to delight in that moment. David gets up in the morning on one of the bad days. My guess, just an assumption on my part, but my guess is it's, it's a morning after one of the dark nights that he has so often that we all know about. Frequent occurrence for him. I mean, I can just imagine it in my head, see him sitting up in bed and going, please God, would you listen to me today? Please. This is everything I know how to say. Please listen and please hear what I'm not even able to say right now. But then David follows that up with even more nuance in verse 2. He says, give attention to the sound of my cry. Um, So the deeper you get into the parent game, the better you get, I think, at translating the kind of cry that's coming out of your kid. 
Those of you who, are, who, are, who have already got kids out of your house, you, you know how the game works. You filed it away. But those of you who, are, who still got little kids in your house, you, you can probably even still look back and like see the growth in that. Uh, good parents, experienced parents, they can tell the difference between the cry, kind of cry where the kid is actually hurt and the kind of cry where you know, it just hurt their feelings. You've lived that in your house. Don't act like you haven't. All right. It's a get up, dust yourself off, you'll be just fine kind of moment. Right? Seen in our house all the time. Eventually... Eventually, you get good enough at this, you can even tell the difference when they're crying because their big sister made them do something that they were already supposed to do, and now they're trying to get their big sister in trouble. That's never happened in my house, ever. (laughs) David pleads, pleads with God to listen carefully so that nothing is missed. Hear what I'm saying. Hear what I'm not able to say. Oh, even understand the shape of my cry, God. Give ear. Consider. Give attention, Lord. The way I see it, there are only really two possible reasons why David would ask such a thing from God. One is that David doesn't believe that God is interested in paying attention. And so he's begging him, pleading with him, pleading with God for him to turn back to him and give just the slightest bit of ear. And David's in a pretty dark spot right now, it seems. we, We find ourselves, I think all of us find ourselves in moments of chaos where 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 all of the the problems crowd out uh what we know to be true about God's character and about his presence. We can't see what's going on because of all the junk that's swirling on around us. And so it's possible, it might be true that he doesn't believe that God cares to pay attention, but the second option for why David would say this is that David totally believes that God is already lovingly paying attention. And he is vocally clinging to that truth of who God is. This is a common theme that I think we see in David's Psalms of Lament. He is constantly saying something out loud that David already knows to be true. Why would he do that? I don't think it's, I don't think it's some kind of new age attempt to you know, manifest the good things that he wants in life. I, I think it's a more realistic issue of convincing himself of truth even as his own sin-bent heart tries to like argue against him. But I'm sure David's the only guy in the world who's ever had to deal with that, right? Definitely not me. I've never had to wrestle with that. David teaches the congregation to consistently remind themselves of how they relate to God. Don't forget this. I know, I know everything is bearing upon you, and you can't possibly see the reasons behind this, but don't forget how you relate to God. Remind yourself of this, even when you're trying to lie against yourself in this. And so he calls out to him, my king and my God. That's an interesting thing for the congregation of Israel to sing. It takes on extra weight when David is singing it, right? It's possible that David wrote this before his ascension to the throne. It's technically possible. But in all likelihood, he's already the king of Israel by the time that this psalm is written, which means that David understands that even in his kingship, he is one under authority. He is still subservient to God as king. 
David reminds himself of that truth, even as he teaches everyone else to remind themselves of it as well. Look at verse 3. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. So that language of preparing a sacrifice, it's really, really complicated in the Hebrew. Um, you start looking at commentaries and study Bibles and all the you know, people who've taught on it. Uh, they're, they're not really sure what to, to make of it, but uh, most English translations render it differently than what the ESV has. They render it as some form of offering prayer. Uh, so many of you in here prefer the New American Standard Version. That's a good translation. Uh, it'll say offering prayer. All right, um, in, in case you didn't know, David is not a priest He's not a priest. In the Jewish system, he would not have been allowed to literally offer a sacrifice. It wasn't his game. In fact, that's something that was specifically, that specifically cost his predecessor, Saul, the blessing of God on his reign. Right? And so David's dumb sometimes, but he's not that dumb. Right? And so this is not something David would have been allowed to do. And so it's, in, it's entirely possible, though, I think, that as a pious king, David would have made regular or even daily trips to uh, the priest and had them offer a sacrifice on his behalf. And so I, I don't see this as some terribly problematic thing. Um, but whether it's a morning sacrifice or some form of early morning ritualistic prayer, the emphasis of verse 3 is not on that part. The emphasis of verse 3 falls on the very last part of the verse. Did you catch it? What does it say? In the morning, I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. See, David has acted obediently on what he is able to act on spiritually, whatever that is. And now he's waiting for God to do what he expects God to do. He has done what he can to act in faithfulness, and now he's watching. He's waiting to see if God will act in the way that David wishes and wants God to act. Have you ever been in a place like that? God, I've done all you taught me to do. When are you going to move? I'm waiting, God. You said you promised this thing or you said this thing is good. I'm waiting for you to do this thing. So what is, what is David wanting God to do? Verse 4. Verse 4. Turn, O Lord, Deliver my life. Oh, I'm in the wrong chapter. All right, there you go. Verse 4 of chapter 5. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. So why is David watching and waiting? It's because David's looking around at the state of the world. And he knows that God can't abide it much longer. The infinitely righteous creator and king cannot, and I mean that in, every, in, in all the fullness of that word, cannot continue to overlook evil forever. And David's looking around going, um, if, if you are who you say you are, why haven't you done anything about this yet? I'm sure David's the only person that's ever done that. Surely, God, your righteousness will be impugned by not acting to judge all of this evil that I see around me. Can't you see this? Are you even paying attention? Why haven't you done anything about this yet? If you are who you say you are, why are you sitting there? I'm waiting. 
You're not a God who delights in wickedness. The boastful cannot stand before your eyes. What are you doing? Where are you at? You ever been in a situation where you're confused about why God hasn't acted consistently yet with who you know him to be? Wondering where he is? Why he hasn't shown up? You ever sat there and wondered why God has seemingly allowed wickedness and evil to continue on unrestrained and unjudged? David's there. David gets you. I, mean, I, know, I know he's supposed to be slow to anger, but I mean, come on already. What are you waiting for, God? Do something about it. Wouldn't the world be a better place if you did something about it? Wouldn't you be glorified if you did something about it? Wouldn't all your people be happier if you did something about it? I've been in that place before. In fact, I, I can't count the number of times I've found myself in the headspace. Even this week. It's a similar trajectory uh, just about every time that it happens in my heart. I don't know if it's the same for you. Uh, questions of why lead to frustration. Frustration leads to bitterness. Bitterness leads to the ridiculous idea that God's inaction somehow means that I'm more morally superior to him. It's a really dumb pathway, but it's the one I've walked. Because, I mean, if I were in charge, I would have done something about it right now already. If I'm, if I'm quicker to act on the good thing than he's quicker to act, that must make me better than him, right? Lightning bolt coming soon. But those of you who have a little more spiritual depth than you, there's this twofold question that I, I think, if answered honestly, God uses to bring his people down to planet Earth. All right? um, the first half of that question is this. How many angles do I personally need to see before I can safely assume that wickedness is actually unrestrained in this world and that evil will remain unjudged? Because I'll be honest with you, I really just have one angle. How many more angles do I need? How many, how many corners do I need to be able to see around to understand that, that God's not acting in any of the ways that I want him to? But there's a second side to that question. How did, how did I get personal righteousness so figured out that I was able to move myself from the category of wicked into the category of righteous? <laughs> when, when did I get that one Correct. As if I weren't contributing my own daily share of sin to the brokenness of this world. See, you answer either one of those questions honestly. And I don't even know if you necessarily need both of the questions. But if you make an attempt to answer either one of those honestly, let alone both of them, every bit of the God, why haven't you done such and such yet, tends to die away. It actually comes crashing to the ground. And for all of his problems, all of his junk, David, at the very least, has some spiritual depth in him. So he, he rushes headlong for those questions. He also takes them in reverse order. Look at verse 7. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. So David realizes that his entrance into the house of God does not come by David's own righteousness. Where does it come? 
It's the abundance of God's steadfast love that draws him in. David didn't get there on his own terms. He was wooed into that place. Meaning, if this were not for God's righteousness, God's goodness towards him, David wouldn't be there either. We just finished the Ruth series, and so y'all ought to have the word steadfast on lockdown. It's a special Hebrew word. Chesed. We, we talked about it too much in the story of Ruth. David pleads with God. He pleads with God to lead him in righteousness and to make his paths straight. And so God has been extravagantly loyal to David. This is the exact opposite posture of, let me show you losers how this is done. David understands that if, if it's not for God's extravagant kindness towards him, David's not near God either. David solves his I can't believe God hasn't acted problem by first remembering how he actually relates to God. He is not hanging around God's house by his own merit. But then he follows that up with a reminder of the ultimate end of those who continue on in their wickedness in verse 9. It says, For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out. For they have rebelled against you. So, so David still wants God to, to act consistently with his character. He even still wants God to act faster than what he's seeing God act, all right? That's, that's not necessarily wrong. But David also understands that there is no future for the wicked. It's not going to get them anywhere. Their end is always destruction. They may flatter with their tongue, but that flattery, it always ends in death. And it will one day end with the perfect judgment of God. Longing for God to bring justice and to avenge His righteousness, those are incredibly good things. Those are not out-of-bounds things at all. But they must also be closely tied together with the realization that God is playing a much longer game than you and I are. And just because we don't see Him acting in a given moment doesn't mean He's not acting. It doesn't mean that he will not one day act with perfection. Just because we have not seen justice fulfilled in a timeline that we might prefer does not mean that that justice will be escaped forever. The Lord of all the earth will, will make things right. And while we wait patiently for that day, we consistently remind ourselves, but for the grace of God, there go I. And so in the song written for corporate worship, David puts words in the mouth of the congregation in verse 11. It says, But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. It says, Let all who take refuge in you rejoice. David takes a bunch of celebration words and he smashes them together with a bunch of kind of military-minded words of perfection. We've got rejoice, sing for joy, exult in you, and then we've also got take refuge, spread your protection, cover him as with a shield. So what's, what's going on there? Well, he's teaching us that in the grand scheme of things, our security is never found by being slightly less wicked than our neighbor. 
It's not, it's not found in being relatively righteous compared to some jerks and morons that you found in the world. It comes through being rightly reconciled to God. Those who have taken refuge in Him are the ones that are able to rejoice. They're not, they're not spending their time constantly looking over their shoulder. They're not worried too much about what, the schemes of the wicked. They are wrapped up in exaltation. They're busy. they got better things to do. They find rest and celebration in the one who has drawn them near. That's true in David's day. and church, it's even more true in our own day. Those who have taken refuge in Jesus, they are not safe and secure based on their own merit. Never have been, never will be. Self-righteousness has never, in all of human history, self-righteousness has never led anyone to enraptured celebration of Jesus. Ever. Those who belong to God have been graciously drawn in by the abundance of his steadfast love. They've been sheltered and they have been shielded by his righteousness. And because of that, they are now freed to exult in his name. If you're here this morning, you're already a follower of Jesus. That's that's our response, to sing for joy. Not because we've mustered up some kind of song, but because how could we not based on what we've reminded ourselves of? That joy-filled singing, it comes flooding out of a heart that truly, deeply understands how it relates to God. A sinner has been reconciled to God by his chesed love. A sinner who now stands in his grace, under his care and protection of Jesus. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. We'll get busy with that singing in a second. But if you want to talk about anything, I'll be down front if you want to talk. But what if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus yet? Like, like, do the math real quick. If, if resting and rejoicing belongs to those who have been reconciled, how do, you get on the, how do you get in on that reconciliation? How do you get some of that? The Bible teaches that we are all, by default, separated relationally from God because of our sin, that we are owed the just and right punishment for sin. The, the Bible calls it death. The Bible calls it hell. The Bible calls it all kinds of not-so-great things. There is no rest and rejoicing for those who are far from him, Period. Thank the Lord, the Lord, the story doesn't stop there. The Bible also teaches that it is while we were still sinners that Christ died for the ungodly. The eternal Son of God put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on a cross as a substitute in your place to make payment for your sin. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. And as the king who conquers sin and death, he calls on you in this very moment to respond to him in repentance and faith, to, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that today. I'd love to help you. Again, I'll be down there if you want to talk about it. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe it's by finally being obedient to Jesus in baptism. Or maybe it's by formally joining our church family. Or maybe it's time to say yes to the call he's placed on your life to take the gospel, his, his message of reconciliation and rest. Maybe it's time to take that to someplace not named here. Well, to help you think through what that looks like to set you up for success in that. No matter who you are, though, no matter how God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's all respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the psalms. Thank you for raw emotion laid bare. 
I'll be honest, I, I tend to shy away from those moments, but it's not because they're not true in my heart. It's because I think I've got to hide it. Because I think I need to bottle it down and suppress it somehow. Thank you for giving us guys that aren't scared of wearing their heart on their sleeve like David. Would you hear our cry? Would you, would you make sense of the groaning that words could never figure out? We see the brokenness of this world. We contribute to the brokenness of this world. And even though it sounds weird, we want, to, we want to long for you and beg you to come quickly to make all things right, to bring justice, to put evil to flight forever. But also, please judge us by the merits of your son instead of our own. If it's not for his perfect righteousness in my place, ooh, I deserve everything the, the evil of this world deserves. So thank you for being the kind of God who's patient enough to, to not only send your son, but to allow people to come to repentance as well. You're a good God. For those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Open eyes to see and ears to hear. Draw men and women into your kingdom today. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.